You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest this week is Eric Ryan. Eric is the Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Iron Mountain's Records and Information Management Business. Prior to this, he worked for GE for 19 years in a variety of industries and leadership positions. He studied economics and political science at Wake Forest University and got his MBA from Yale with a focus in sustainability. Eric lives in the Boston area with his wife and two daughters and spends his free time playing music, violin specifically, and building high-powered rockets. Yes, seriously. Okay, I'm not even going to ask. First of all, hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Laura. I appreciate the introduction and the time. It's wonderful to be here. And you know what? I changed my mind. I am going to ask you. So uh, normally I just ask openly, hey, what's your fun fact? But I think I just ruined that. So high-powered rockets? What's that about? It's hard not to talk about the rockets. (laughs) I will not indulge too much in it. But there's a couple of these. I like to build, right? I like to engineer. I like to create. And it's got a wonderful aspect of mathematics and the design, construction and kind of the tangible aspect that you don't get a lot of in the spreadsheets. And it's generally something that's a string from adolescence that's just fun to keep up with. And you know, these are big, like, you know, person size, six, seven foot tall things that take some time. I love sharing this with my team because I want to understand their hobbies. I want to understand the dimension that they have in life because I'm sure many people listening here are very dedicated, very hardworking, aspirational folks. And the more you focus on your craft, the better you will be, but the more your brain will need a bit of variation in what you're doing and how you're thinking about things. So to be able to step aside and have a hobby, have music, come join the Rocket Club. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's a good way to get balance and get a way to share yourself with your team better. So everybody, there's your first piece of advice. Join the Rocket Club. You heard it here first. I can honestly say in almost 200 episodes, I don't believe I've ever heard anyone give that particular piece of guidance, join the Rocket Club or whatever your version of that is to clear the brain of sorts. That's terrific. Now, Eric, tell us a little bit more about Iron Mountain. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Yeah, wonderful. So Iron Mountain is a physical and digital data storage company. We're around $5 in revenues, operating over 60 countries, 26,000 resources. And most people, particularly in the U.S., know us for this document management shredding operation. They see the boxes in their workplace. They see the trucks on the road. But we have a fast-growing data center business. We work in asset lifecycle management to manage the circular economy for tech companies. And we also have an exciting asset and arts entertainment protection business where we're working in areas like the digital masters and original recordings. And finance is finance, but when you get to work on those sorts of things, it's interesting and the the solutions that you got to bring for customers are quite varied. It sounds like it. So whether you're going to physical storage or movies footage storage, or that's really quite the range. It gives storage a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Yeah. It's ultimately about working with customers to monetize, protect, and grow what they value and what matters to them. And it does span the gamut. 
So then what is something that you wish more people understood about your role, company, or industry? And what's your personal role in changing that perception? The main thing that we're working on internally and externally is to get folks to come to understand the strength and diversity that we have across these product lines. That at our foundation, yes, we are a core storage business that has 1,400 sites and 700 million cubic feet of box storage. But there's kind of like when I worked for GE for 19 years, I'd meet people and they say, oh, yeah, I have a GE microwave or, you know, yeah, the light bulb. Meanwhile, I'm working on, you know, jet engine applications for hovercrafts. Like, I want to talk about that. In the same way, I want to talk about what's next for Iron Mountain and how we're at the forefront of technical solutions that help spread from the paper assets into the digital assets, for example. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. I know all of us as consumers have experience working with doctor's offices, working on our taxes, perhaps filling out mortgage applications. You know, 10, 15 years ago, there was tons of paper. I remember being at the lawyer's office trying to close in my first house with stacks of bank statements, things wrapped in rubber bands. And what we see now is you're uploading documents. Or even better, you're just creating a link between two enterprises to share that information for you. And what Iron Mountain does is we create the workflows and in large part, we work on the AI and machine learning aspects of this so that when your information is received on the other side for the customer, the computer knows what to do with it. It knows how to take that bank statement, take that application form, read your handwriting, understand what data elements to build into the underwriting process for this mortgage. And the thing I have to work on, both internally and externally, is one, get folks to recognize that's where the growth is going to be with the company. But also, it's about the mind share internally about how to focus on that white space, on those new opportunities. Because it's a lot safer, let's say, easier to optimize where you're already a strong leader. Hmm. But to force folks within your team to take those risks and to have financial processes to be able to be ready for those. That is what I do with my team. We work on building new processes that are aligned with these new aspects of work and allocate capital to support that. And getting my team to be optimistic and continue to fill their reservoir of positivity about that future and that new line of work is where I focus. It's interesting because, and I'm not a financial person, but a lot of what I understand in the CFO's role is to make sure that the company is staying the course in many ways and not going off the rails, is staying financially safe, you know, the accountant's jobs of sorts, and I realize not all finance is accounting, but, you know, making sure that everything, all the boxes are checked, take the stable, more safe kind of route. And yet it sounds like what I'm hearing is that a big part of your job, or the, at least the part you like best, is the vision and saying, where else should we be going? What risks should we be taking? And to convince those who otherwise aren't risk-oriented, so to speak, to get them on board and rowing in that direction as well and finding that balance. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Right. There is no profit without risk-taking. Right. Mm -hmm. And governance can be thought of with a controls-based mindset or with a risk-based mindset? How do you create the guardrails for people to operate in to know what that risk strike zone looks like and where that capital needs to be allocated and where those processes need to be to facilitate the best outcomes for those risks that we're taking? And that in the finance function, my finance function, is working to build up that architecture to support this growth objective. Making sure that all the ducks are in a row to be able to take the right calculated risks. And then it sounds like getting people on board. That's where the real communications people comes in, persuasion on that, that the risk is worth taking. Absolutely. And it's not so much 
pure persuasion, like there's like resistance, but it's getting my team to recognize that we have this expertise, this legacy of 70 years in this area. We now get the joy and the opportunity to build it up for these new sets of product lines. And then externally get folks to see with this performance management, with this risk-based focus, that our results are proof of the strength of the diversity of this offering and the way we're able to capitalize in the relationships that we have with our customers. I love the notion of it's about the extension of legacy. What has been the legacy for 100 years and what's going to be the next 100 and how do we get there? Because it's going to go way beyond boxes at that point. Yes. And I talk a lot about the inheritance and you know proving that we can create the same thing for the next generation of leaders, the next customers, and that they have the same thing to carry the company forward. Yes. Now, in doing this, in all this persuasion, either in this group or the other in past experiences, did you ever think that you did a great job of explaining something only to have that deer in the headlights look in return? Yes, for sure. I've got a number of examples business-wise that I can bring to the table. I think it might be a little bit more entertaining to talk about something on the personal side that has application also in our work environment. I had the chance of sharing a conversation with Prince Edward, the youngest son of the late Queen Elizabeth. Of course. I mean, who hasn't chatted with Eddie along the way? So tell me about how exactly you ran into Prince Edward. So my wife and I were vacationing in St. Lucia. This is a part of the British Commonwealth. We had no idea that the royal family was going to be visiting at this time. We blocked some time in a sustainable farm, kind of set in the hills, sort of rustic, you know, gorgeous there. And we were coming down for breakfast, I think the second morning we were there. And imagine a courtyard scene, kind of sun rising, you got some food coming out. And we noticed there's a lot of different people kind of moving around in a, in a sort of speedy motion, trying to get something set up, putting up signs, getting ready for something. So we asked, like, what is going on here? And of course, the answer was, we're getting this visitor to promote the island, to work on the aspects, particularly of the environmental tourism that they were focused on. And so my wife immediately goes back to the room, puts on a dress because she wants to get connected with the royals and take advantage of this. And I just say, let's just slow roll the breakfast and let's see what happens. So we slow roll it enough where we're the only ones there. So when the entourage arrives, Prince Edward and his wife come out. He's looking around. He just basically locks eyes with me because I'm the only one sitting there. So he comes over and... He came over to you. You didn't have to approach to him. Yeah, we were just sitting at the table. And just trying to see what happened, right? Observing this situation. And he comes out, locks eyes, comes over and starts it off in a wonderfully benign kind of open way. Like, where are you guys from? What's your name? Have you been here before? And we share a little bit of intro stuff. And I, instead of taking that opportunity to tell him about what we're doing here and try to understand what his role was here and what he was trying to get, I felt like I needed to sort of prove myself. Like, no, I haven't been here before. But I've been to you know, the Azores, where my wife and I went on our honeymoon, and I take point after point, time after time, to describe all these great things that we did in the Azores. Eventually, he just stops me and says, like, you know, I've been there. These islands are actually not the same. <laughs> so instead of taking that hint, I get this sort of competitive intellectual spirit growing in me. I start to try to convince him because of the volcanic origins of both islands oh, no. and like the way the tectonic plates move to create these things actually no, Prince Edward, you're wrong. They are quite similar. That's hilarious. Is, you know, the whole conversation got ridiculous at that point. My wife then jumps in to save me and, you know, to ask him about his kids, whatever, and then it just kind of devolves from there. So I think there are two key lessons from the ridiculousness of that. Lay it on me. One is, in particular, if you're meeting someone where there's a power differential and you don't know each other and you're in a different place, you've got to meet them where they are. 
recognize the commonality that you're sharing in that moment and try to seek something of interest along that line, mm-hmm. right? Certainly don't try to prove yourself in a way that is tangential, but not you know related to what's going to leave you both energized to meet the adventure of that day. Now, the second thing also from his perspective, because a lot of people that we're talking to here, I have to think about where I'm in a position of power relative to someone else. If you see someone going off the track like this, maybe don't challenge them on like, no, you're wrong about this. <laughs> like, let's maybe figure out how to steer them back to the path so that you can both leave with a strong impression and some positive momentum from that conversation. So you know, when I'm in that role, I think of this, I'm guessing he doesn't think of this conversation much, but who knows? It's so funny because I can just imagine everybody out there has had at least one, I'll be super generous in saying at least one or understated, I should say, that of those situations where there's the adrenaline kicking in and there's the a little bit of either whether it's imposter syndrome or whether it is just a sense of unworthiness because of the status differential between two people and the brain kicks in to I need to try to prove myself, prove that I am worthy, prove that I am smart, prove that I am whatever it happens to be, fill in the adjective of choice. And then we just almost have an out-of-body experience where we hear ourselves start rambling and blathering and talking. And the part of us that's transcended our own bodies and is watching us from behind going, you can stop talking now. Stop talking now. Why are you still talking? Oh my gosh, you're still talking. And we just sit there and go, I, 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 I want to stop. I just don't know how to stop the train. It's this runaway locomotive. And, uh, you know, thank God for people in this case, like your wife or whoever else who manages to stop and say, so Laura, yes, um, that, that's a great point. You know, one other thing that I was thinking of, and then help throw the brakes on the train before it goes careening into the abyss, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of people out there. Yes, the volcano, perhaps, in this case of these islands. Yes, much better analogy. Thank you for that opportunity. So always lovely to be there. You know what, Eric, I think this is a great chance to challenge our listeners to not go off the rails, perhaps, and go in a more effective direction. Now it's time for our 24-hour influence challenge. So How would you like to challenge our listeners today to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence? So I'm going to borrow a lesson I learned from Zoe Chance, who's a professor and author uh, from the Yale School of Management. The challenge I'd give for 24 hours is say no to everything. Whatever request comes, whatever new thing, personal, career-wise within your job, say no. Just say no. (laughs) borrowing from the Nancy Reagan playbook. That's right. I think there's a couple benefits to this. One, you'll get to see how that plays out with your audience, with yourself. How do you feel about declining particular Mm -hmm. things? Where does it make you understand what you value, what you don't? To the extent that it creates space, what are you going to do with that space? How do you think about then the priorities you can fill with your own ambition and autonomy to use what you have for the rest of the day, for the week to come, because you did not commit, or in some cases, you did not overcommit. And I think that's the other thing that we've got to, or that I realize that I see from my teams, that everyone is so eager to be perceived as ambitious and motivated that it's yes, yes, yes. And it dilutes the impact and you have too many priorities where you can't get the focus, get the drive down to conclusion in the area that you really want to work. So This 24-hour thing is not going to solve that complete problem, but it's going to start to build in the practice and the habit of how do you politely decline? How do you use no to potentially 
redirect a conversation and come up with a unique solution that solves the same problem, but maybe in a different way. So that's my challenge to audiences. And again, thank you to Zoe for instilling that in me. There are about 14 different thoughts that just came into my head. And on the one hand, I can imagine that half of the audience went, oh, that'd be great. Good. I'm just going to blame Eric. Okay. Eric said, I have to say no. So sorry, can't help you today. And the other half is going, I can't do that. How could I say no? The people pleaser nature, the, it's part of the human condition, I think, to not want to say no, to not want to hurt somebody's feelings, to not want to disappoint people, to want to help people, to want to be the nice guy, to want to be likable, all of those kinds of things. There is a point at which we need to say no, which is, mind you, a really important point of distinction. I think you said two of them. Number one is when you have too many priorities, nothing gets done. And there's another adage that when you have too many priorities, you have no priorities. Remember, everybody, I'm a linguist. I'm going to geek out on you for two seconds here. The word priority was only single until I believe it was the late 1800s, which was the first time that maybe off by a few decades here or there, but it was never a pluralizable noun. You had a priority. That's what it was. And now we have our priorities, at which case... That almost is antithetical to the meaning of the word itself. So, okay, off of my etymological soapbox here, but back to the point that it's not just about saying, no, you said it's a good opportunity to practice how to politely decline. So it's not just about, nope, close the door, you're done. A, politely decline, and B, perhaps creatively and collaboratively problem solve, offering alternative solutions. What are other ways that this person could have that need met? And I think one thing that you had mentioned to me earlier as well was that it may not be literally everything. Look, the CEO turns to you and says, I need you to do this for the group or to be ready to present to the board next week on something. Probably not something you're going to say no on, but watch that slippery slope of how many things you're going to say, well, this is an exception to the rule. Because again, that's just as an excuse to go back. And when everything is an exception it's not really a rule. So let me bring this back to you now that I've given my 14 different interpretations. A, you borrowed this from a Yale professor. Did you follow the advice yourself? Well, yeah, you, you, could it, you could do it for a longer period of time. It's usually done with the classes for a month. Oh my <laughs> so gosh, wow. Maybe it's not no to everything, right? If, you're, you know, if your partner of many years asks you to marry them at that point, you know, maybe. That might be a good point to say yes. Yeah, if you've been waiting for that one. Yes, I find I sometimes lean more into the yes, but, which is not the same, right? You have to, mm. you got to stick with the no, figure out how it helps you find that space. And like you said, creates more discussion around options, but it absolutely does create a good habit. So the first time that this challenge was levied to you and you accepted it, what was it like that first day? Oh, I didn't succeed. There's such a desire to be the helper. Like I'm still ingrained with my stepfather's advice going into day one of work. You're there to show what you can do, say yes to everything. Mm. I'm not saying everyone has received that advice, but that's the advice I received. Always be open to branch out, be limitless and be limited only by your own ambition to cover the scope that you think you can handle. And that's going to lead you to dilute yourself and it's going to so, lead you to burn yourself out. And it's going to set examples for teams that mm. doesn't enable prioritization Right. And well, I'm curious. So, the first time that you did start to shift and start to say no to things, how did you do it and how did it feel? Well, the thing that struck me most about the advice was uh, to learn that no is a complete sentence. Ooh, interesting. Talk more about that. I personally love to rationalize, expound, give people an understanding of my intention and why I'm doing something. And 
that can only just dilute potentially to open up doors to poke holes. And like, if you're going to stick to this, just simply say no and see what reaction you get and see how you feel about that reaction and see if it then creates a different level of discussion or a different direction for things to go. But if you say no and then offer all the variety of rationales behind the different answers and why you came to that one, it loads it up for the person asking and it doesn't allow it to go potentially the direction that they may want it to or they need it to go. Again, it's about kind of focusing on the audience a bit and putting it back to them and understanding how they might refocus their priorities, their desires with that obstacle. The first time that you said no, how did it feel? I think it felt freeing because I could then feel like I control my own calendar, I control my own agenda, and I am helping to set an example for my team to make tough choices, right? This gets back to even our point about the overall business model. You got to place bets, you got to have specific capital allocation and focus. And when we do that, when I make those choices, I am manifesting what I want to see in my team and what I want to see in the business doing in the market. Yeah. So simple concepts are not necessarily easy to execute. So so we're going to work on that. All right, everybody out there, you have your permission. You've got some steps and no is the complete sentence. Of course, you can say it politely. No, maybe wish I could, don't have the bandwidth. Sorry, but I can't. There's lots of ways to hedge it and couch a little bit without going into the long rambling list of explanations as to and justifications. Let's put it that way. But uh, I think it sounds like a great opportunity. And thanks, Lauren. One other thing that comes to mind is when you're doing it with your team, and they're making requests on you and you say, no, it's actually empowering them to continue to own the areas of execution that they have. And that's what I sometimes work on with my team members. It's so important that we lead by that example. And thank you for reminding us of that as well. Now, when's a time when you allowed yourself to be emotionally vulnerable with your team? And how did it impact your relationship with them moving forward? This is an important question. I'm often very open with the team. I talked earlier about you know sharing my hobbies. They know my family. They understand my interests. One specific example that comes to mind a couple of years ago, I was at a team dinner, picture a loud restaurant, glasses clanking together, you know, you don't know where you're going to sit, you land in front of somebody that you don't really know very well. And you start into the, you know, where do you live? Tell me about your family. And so we were working through that. This was a gentleman that was new to the business. So I was describing my family, my two daughters, and that brought me down a track of recollection of how things were when my first daughter was born and all the different stress that was going on with school, with my wife pregnant, with working in this transition from General Electric into Iron Mountain. And I shared with this gentleman that I was having a number of different anxiety attacks and I Mm. wake up in the middle of the night hyperventilating or like heart palpitations and stuff, which in those moments is, you know, is frightening, but broadly is not like a, a huge medical concern. But I kept going to different doctors. I went to the cardiologist, the neurologist, the endocrinologist, trying to figure out what's going on. And it kind of went nowhere in the end, of course, surprise, eat better, exercise, have good sleep habits, and eventually these things go away. That was the advice from the doctor that you got it. No, the doctors didn't know what the heck was going on. And they were just <laughs> passing me around to, from different specialists to specialists. And I just stepped back and realized, like, wait a second, of course, there's all these things going on in my life. If I exercise more, eat better, go to sleep at the same time every night, this will eventually kind of work itself out. It did. The point of the story, though, is I'm sharing this with this guy that I first met, and he, completely, he immediately disarms, and he says, you know, this is the exact same thing that happened to him. And oh. he had the same set of experiences, the same conversations with his doctors, the same journey, how to work through this part of your life where you're building up a family, managing your career, and 
it's not as though we got into like sort of sharing diagnoses and like all that kind of stuff, but it, it created this sort of unspoken bond for us. We understand where we're coming from. Like we know how we think about our priorities and how we work with our teams, how we care about our families. And it's just allowed us to cut through a lot of things as we work together now and everything is just playing out in the open. And that foundation of the relationship would not have been possible without just offering up this slice of history that was not work-related but was met with a common point on his side. And I mm. think the, the, the fun thing to think about is I could have randomly picked any other chair at that dinner table. Right. And on the one hand, that could put, put me down a path that would have been harder for me to build a bond with this gentleman and continue to work with him effectively. Yeah. But also on the positive side, if I'm just as open, just as confident in the vulnerabilities and experiences that I have, if I open up on other things with other counterparts at the table, they would likely produce the same kind of results just for different reasons. Sure. Because we obviously have more in common than we realize with others and people value honesty and they value a diversity of experiences. So I'm open to share that because I want people to understand me better and I see the benefit it has in the relationships that are forged at work. I give you a lot of credit for having the courage to share those kinds of stories with somebody and you know, of course, we're not advocating that people just do a data dump and, you know, open the closet and share all the personal family laundry and whatever else. But sometimes there is a time and a place to make that connection when you just feel like it's the right moment to connect. And clearly this really bore fruit. So it's encouraging for people who might want to share something a little bit scary like that, but not know how. So uh, that's amazing. And you've been connected ever since. Yes. Yeah, we don't agree on everything. I talked to him just this morning, actually, about this. You know, I talked to him about this this morning just to be sure he was comfortable. And he had the same exact recollection. That he was comfortable with you sharing the story, you mean? Of course. And yeah. it's just a good reminder that the connection I'm looking for, people are looking for the same thing. And if you're open to make those connections, you're going to get more hits than you are going to strike out on that. I think it's beautiful. And I think it's an important point of distinction as well to everybody out there that, yes, this was something that the two of you shared at one point. And recognizing that it would be something of that an audience, that my audience, everybody out here would appreciate having as an example to learn from, but honoring the relationship, going back to him first and saying, you know, I'm going to be on the show and I'd like to talk about this particular experience. Not that I'm going to use your name, not that I'm going to do whatever else, but is it okay if I share it just for him to be able to then, and that's a testament to him to say yes, because he agrees that it's important that more people hear about these kinds of examples. So Whoever he is, thank him and thank you very much for opening up that little anecdote and that experience together. I think it empowers a lot of people. Now, what about a time when you needed to inspire somebody else? How did that go? So I think in the finance function, particularly in public companies, teams are confronted within each quarter, each year to kind of reinvigorate themselves onto the next challenge. And what I find is there are members of my team and the, the team broadly that value this kind of predictability, this set recurring nature of the cadence and find some stability in that. And then there are others who enter into the new quarter, the new year, thinking this is the hardest it's ever been. This is mm. the biggest challenge we ever have. You know, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. It's just after all these quarters in a row, here's just another. It's going to be, this is the last one. And what I find is inspirational and what I, the message I try to bring to my teams, and there's an important distinction here where you have to, be leading for performance versus leading for inspiration, where I'm trying to lead for inspiration here, is holding the mirror up to the team and showing, yes, each quarter 
is hard and they've built upon one another. But that set of data, that set of history is exactly what we can use to kind of ignite the motivation that we have today because we've done this before. The yeah. business model we have creates these new opportunities. It's not like we're working from the same set of facts three years ago. We've got a new set of facts, a new set of circumstances, but the ability that we have today and you know all the tools we have at our disposal are enough to get us there because we did it last quarter, we did it last quarter, we did it last year. So just reminding people of their own success mm. and using the wealth of data that finances has to draw those parallels and show the reaction we've had to challenges before builds confidence in folks and helps them move forward into the next quarter and so on and so on. And this is, again, something that I've done at Iron Mountain. And I'm recalling at GE Aviation, I used to start meetings of the budget process, bringing up, I don't know if the listeners remember the film The Matrix, mm, where Keanu Reeves is going you know, to meet with somebody and there's a little kid there bending spoons with his mind. And he's telling Keanu Reeves, oh, you got to realize the truth. You know, there is no spoon. And I try to get people to realize the truth that this is not mission impossible. It's not the hardest thing you've ever had to do. You've done this before. You know how to do it. This is the proof through the data and go forward with that confidence to lead your respective teams. I love that idea of taking people's own history as data and evidence that whatever is the next mountain, no pun intended, that you'll be able to climb that because you've climbed every other one to date. So to take away that self-doubt and just trust that you have the creativity, the resilience, the resourcefulness, the knowledge, the expertise, the strength, the skill to be able to get over this one too. And I think on that particular note of inspiration and empowerment, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. So we need to wrap things up here. But how can people learn more about you, Eric, and Iron Mountain? Yeah, I'd encourage you guys to make a connection on LinkedIn and also at ironmountain.com. There's a career section. We are a growing business. We have a number of open roles. If you're intrigued by the story that you heard here and the types of leadership that we bring, please look at opportunities there. Love it. Thank you so much for the invitation to the rest of our listeners. Feel free to spread that word along as well. And it was really lovely having you on the show today. Eric, thank you so much. To everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. As always, don't forget to subscribe if this is your first time listening so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest of your favorite platforms of choice so that we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health.
health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.